Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce, and we're thrilled to have you as we jump into this wonderful journey called Revelation, the book of Revelation. So this is going to be our second podcast about the book of Revelation, and I don't know, Bryce, I don't even know if we're going to be able to get out of chapter one, but we're going to try. Yeah, but that's okay, because I think chapter one is a great way to kick off the book of Revelation. Let me start off by taking everyone back to the Book of Mormon, to Nephi and to Isaiah. Now, bear with me, you'll see where I'm going. After Nephi quotes a huge chunk of Isaiah in 2 Nephi, then we get to chapter 25, and Nephi tells us that his people found it hard to understand the writings of Isaiah because, quote, they knew not concerning the manner of prophesying among the Jews. They weren't familiar with the style of the Jews, the symbolic nature of the writings of Isaiah and some of the Old Testament prophets. And so Nephi says, as a contrast, I'm going to write in plainness. And that's what he does. He writes clearly in plainness. And so the whole rest of the Book of Mormon is written in plainness. All the other future writers kind of follow Nephi's style. And those of us who read the Book of Mormon have been weaned on plainness. And that's one of the reasons why I think we struggle with symbolic scripture. We, like Nephi's people, know not concerning the manner of prophesying among the Jews. So it seems to me the Lord knew that. He knew that we would be weak with symbolic writing, and so he gives us chapter 1 kind of to practice, to get a, to cut our teeth on symbolism. And in this chapter, he's actually going to tell us what some of the things symbolize, what the, some, some of the symbolisms mean. And so chapter 1 is a great chance to kind of practice. Now, again, back in Nephi, if you'll go to another portion, 1 Nephi chapter 19 right before he's about to quote a whole bunch of them. He uses an interesting word. Now, I'm going to read this, and no one look. I won't tell you the verse number yet. Um, So I'm going to read from Nephi's versions, and you tell me what word you would naturally fill in in this verse. And then we're going to take a look at what word is there. So let's do one more insight from Nephi. Let's go to 2 Nephi chapter 11, right before he he, he quotes this huge chunk of Isaiah. Now, I'm not going to give you the verse, You don't look yet. I'm going to quote it, and I'm going to give a blank, and you tell me what word your mind fills in. So you're in 2 Nephi 11. I'm in 2 Nephi 11, but I'm not going to tell you what verse yet. Ready? So Nephi says, And now I write some of the words of Isaiah, that whoso of my people shall blank these words. I'm going to write some words of Isaiah, and whoso of my people shall blank these words. Now, most people, I'm guessing, are going to say words like read or understand or comprehend. But now look at 2 Nephi chapter 11, verse 8. That's a fascinating word. Whosoever of my people shall see these words. And it seems to me that Nephi is trying to say, If we're going to understand symbolic nature, if we're going to understand symbolic scripture, we have to picture it. You have to see it in your mind. You have to ask questions and play with the image and say, why? How is Jesus like that? How are we like candlesticks? How are we like keys? And then play with them. You have to see it. And then we'll get better. So chapter one is a great chance to practice with these images. So, Mike, why don't you start us off with the first couple of images that we find in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 starts with a bunch of images. You have essentially 
uh, well, you have seven churches that are going to be addressed. We have the name of God in verse 8 as Alpha and Omega. We've got, uh, look in verse 6. God has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. So what's going on there? And what's going on with the imagery in verse 5? And so we have a lot of things happening right out of the gate with um, with God and with his name. So I want to just take a minute. I'm, I'm probably not going to do Almighty in this podcast. We'll probably do the word for Almighty and creation and how it's viewed. But I, just as a teaser for our next podcast, Almighty used as a, a description of God doesn't mean necessarily that he can do whatever he wants, that he can do anything. But it means... Uh, or it has a teaching or, or a design or feeling that he is a person who is an organizer. But we'll get to that because we're doing symbols. So Alpha and Omega right there, the first and the last. That's verse 8. I'm Alpha and Omega. Those are the beginning and the ending of the alphabet in Greek. And in Hebrew... It's like saying I am A and Z. Yeah, I am, I'm A to Z. In Hebrew, the word for truth is emeth. And it's another designation for God. It's it's the it's three characters in Hebrew. It's the Aleph, which is the beginning, and the Tau, which is the end. And that's the beginning and the end of the word. And the middle character is Mem. And that's where in English we get the sound of M, the, the M. And if you look at the letter M, it kind of in English looks like a, a little wave on top of it. And if you look at the, and I will put this in the show notes, but if you look at the character Mem, it represents waves. It represents the sea, and it's the middle character. And here's the idea, and this is, I'm getting a lot of this from Hasidic Judaism. I'll put, I'll put it in the show notes. But the Aleph represents coming from the presence of God, and the Mem represents the sea, the chaos in which we live, or the present now. And the Aleph, the first character, is the past. And the last character, the Tau, is like a gate or an entryway into the heavens, into the future. And so if you read section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says, this is truth. MF, that's the word for truth. And then the Lord says, it is knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. In other words, the Aleph, the Mem, the Tau, that is truth. It's knowledge of things of the past, where I am today, the present, the ocean of chaos, and the future. That is the Hebrew rendering of verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. And Jesus, to me, Bryce, in this text, is saying to John, I get it. I've seen the past. I've seen the future. I'm with you in the now. And by the way, if I had two words to describe the whole book, it's Jesus wins. And that's that's Alpha and Omega. That's just one of the symbols. And that's here. such beautiful symbol because you could ask yourself, how is Jesus like A and how is he like Z? How is Jesus like A? Well, A is the beginning and Z is the end. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Well, what is he the beginning of? He's the beginning of hope and light and life. What is he the end of? Pain and sorrow, sin. He is the beginning and the end. That's just these symbols, we need to just wrestle with them. How is Jesus Alpha and Omega? How is he the beginning and the end? Or the author and the finisher. The author and the finisher. Of my the, faith. And again, do you see what we're doing? We're, we're practicing with these symbols. We're, being, we're seeing them and trying to find meaning in them. So how about candlesticks, Mike? Tell okay. us about candlesticks. Okay, we got to do candlesticks. So go to verse 16 in chapter 1. So here we go. Verse 16. 
well, first of all, he sees he sees the Savior in the midst of seven candlesticks in verse 13. So here's the context. The person speaking to John, the Savior, he's in the midst of seven candlesticks in verse 13. But what are these candlesticks? And if you read at the end, and, and by the way, I like how you said, Bryce, this is a practice. We're practicing this. It's almost like here's the answer key at the end. So look in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which I think, Bryce, you're going to talk about. I'll do stars. Yeah, um, which you saw in my hand are the seven, or, and the seven golden candlesticks. Um, the seven stars are the angels, which Bryce is going to talk about, of the seven churches. But the seven candlesticks, which you see or which you saw, are the seven churches. So here's the imagery. Here's what you got to get in your head. John sees Jesus. He's in the midst of seven golden candlesticks, and he has seven stars in his hand. And then in verse 20, he says, by the way, John, I'm going to explain this to you. This is what's going on. The seven golden candlesticks are the churches. Now, here's where it gets exciting. If you've read the Old Testament and you've read Exodus, the description of the menorah is as a candlestick with seven branches. And if you read it carefully, the description is of a tree. And so walk with me through this, Bryce. You have the Savior standing in a tree. And the tree or the branches are the churches. So Jesus is with the churches. Now, a candlestick is a good image. So let's pause on the tree and go to the candlestick. What does the candlestick do? It gives off light. It holds something and gives off light. But what is the source of the light? Jesus is the source yeah. of the light. Yeah. So the so what so is it saying about the church? The candlestick is the bowl that holds it. We are the recipients. We're the vessel that holds the oil that gives off the light. It's so good. Such a good symbol. They're not the light, but they hold it up. And I love when you do this, Bryce, where you say, okay, well, what's the message? How does it apply? And to me, it's I need to hold up Jesus. I need to do what I can in this world of darkness to stand up and say, hey, that's not right. And I'm going to stand up for what's right. And I've got to do it in a way that that is applicable and that is you know temperate. We can't be extreme. But I think as Latter-day Saints, it's incumbent upon us to get into the marketplace of ideas and preach Jesus. We must be candlesticks. And if we think, well, that's not very Christian to stand up and say that, uh, read Matthew, especially the last few chapters. Jesus at times says, you know what? We are going to do this. We are going to teach truth. So that's one one way. Now I want to talk about the tree just briefly. And this is first, second temple Judaism, first, second temple Israelite religion. In the original temple, there was a tree or a symbol of a tree in the Holy of Holies. It was the menorah stylized as a tree. It was in there. And so imagine, this is John restoring first temple religion. The tree is in the temple, so who is John talking to, and where is John standing? And to me, to chapter 1 is, John is in the holy place. He is in the holiest of all, and he's talking to the Lord in a tree, which to me unpacks everything with with Exodus 6 and 3. It's not a bush. Moses isn't talking to a plant. He's not talking to a, a rock or a goat. He's talking to Yahweh, and it's described as a burning bush. In other words, I think John is restoring some of these notions or these teachings or or intentions of these original authors, and we're putting Jesus there in that symbol of the tree. And by the way, 
and this is where I love where Bryce does this, it all ties back to Nephi's vision. Nephi's vision of the tree is a complement to the book of Revelation. The tree is in the holiest, and Yahweh's on his throne extending his scepter or his rod. And this is dream imagery. Brothers and sisters, the rod is not a railing. It's an extension of the king. And you can do so many things with that, even in modern application. So if Jesus is in the middle of the candlesticks, and the candlesticks represent the churches, from chapter 1 of Revelation, he's saying, I'm going to be with you this whole time. Where is Jesus going to be in the latter days? Where is he going to be as we march forward? Where is he going to be when the earth is cleansed? I will be in the middle of my church. So you've got to see Jesus in the middle of the seven candlesticks. Yes. So we've got candlesticks. We've got the Savior. I want to do verse 16. In the Savior's right hand are seven stars. So Jesus is holding stars in his right hand. And then in chapter 20, you know, because I think we're practicing, the Lord comes out and says, hey, the stars are the angels or the servants or the key holders of the seven churches. So where is my bishop? Where is my stake president? Where is President Nelson? Where are the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles? They are in the right hand of the Savior. He's holding them in his right hand. Now, what do we say about stars that are held still? There is one star in our sky that is held still. It's constant. And if you have a constant star, you can guide yourself by it in the night. Mariners throughout the history of the world have guided themselves by that constant star, as if the star were being held in the Savior's right hand. And that's what the prophet is. He's a star being held in the Savior's right hand. Now, like we said in our last podcast, look for the parallel images. If you'll turn to Revelation chapter 12, watch what Satan does with his stars. Jesus is holding his seven stars in his right hand. And then in verse 4, Satan is casting his stars down. Now, what would you say about a star that's being cast down? It's a falling star. It's beautiful. It glitters. It catches our attention. Satan's stars are glittering, beautiful stars that catch our attention. But you could never guard your life by them. You could never follow them. You could never navigate the seas based on a falling star. And that's what Satan's stars are. They may have bright light for a moment, but then they fall. But Jesus holds his stars in his right hand. They're constant. They're firm. Guess what messages we're going to hear at the general conference next? We're going to hear the same messages, the same messages we heard 100 years ago. And 100 years from now, they may tweak it a little bit, but we're going to hear the same message because Jesus is holding his stars constant in his hand. But when you have a constant star, you can navigate your life and get safely to your destination based on a constant star. I find it ironic, Bryce. I have to say this. I find it ironic that there are so many people that are famous. That are called stars. <laughs> we call them stars. Yep. And yet you would never want to, I'm not going to name, but you can fill in the blank. I would never want to navigate my life out of, you know, so-and-so who's been married 13 times and in and out of rehab 19 times. And I'm not trying to make light of divorce or rehab, but my point is a lot of people that we call stars that have a star on the walk of fame Many of them would say, man, my life is kind of a shambles. I don't know if you'd want to pattern your life after my life. And yet the stars that are stars from the Lord's perspective are highly ignored by the world. That's right. 
because they're just constant. They don't glitter. They don't shimmer in the night necessarily. They don't catch our attention. But man, do they stay constant. And you can navigate your life by a constant star. Now, yeah. do you see what we're doing with these images, Mike? Do you see, everyone, what we're doing? You've got to learn to see. You've got to see it and then say, okay, how is Jesus, how is my bishop like a star in the right hand of, sa- er, of the Savior? So play with these images because all of this will become to, we'll, you know, we'll need this muscle to be flexing when we get into the rest of the book of Revelation. And I also like how a lot of times John will tell you, Hey, the, or John will say, this is what the angels told me. This is the, the decoder ring, as it were. This is what it's saying. And it, if it weren't for the restoration or the revelations of the restoration, if it weren't for a new modern text revelation, uh, for example, section 77, Bryce, is a huge key that's going to unlock this. So if I was to teach this, if I had to teach revelation in front of a bunch of people, I would certainly want to read section 77 and kind of understand some of that. But Bryce, this is good. So we've opened up chapter one. So uh, Bryce, what do you want to talk about next? Well, let's do another symbol. Look at verse 18. What else does Jesus have in his hand? He's got a key in there. He's got keys. Now, what do his keys go to? Right. Death and hell. Death and hell. Jesus has the keys of death and hell. Now, what is the key of death? He doesn't cause death. He unlocks death. He opens the earth and frees the captive spirits from the grave, and he unleashes them. He opens death. What does he do with hell? He unlocks hell, and he lets people in. And that's what the Savior does with his keys. He he frees us from prison. Now, Satan also has keys. And if you'll turn to chapter 9, there's kind of a, a poke here at what Lucifer does with his keys. Someone holds the keys to the bottomless pit. Now, what would Satan do with the key to the bottomless pit? What verse are you in right now? Chapter 9, verse 1. 9, 1. So there's an angel who has a key to the bottomless. A star fell from heaven, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now, what is Satan going to do with the key of the bottomless pit? Well, if you think about that, what he does in chapter 9 is he unleashes fury. He unleashes chaos and havoc. But I like to think, you know, play with that image. What does Jesus, what does Satan do in my life with the key to the bottomless pit? He locks me in. His whole purpose of having that key is to lock the door and to trap me in. Book of Revelation talks about a cage of hateful birds. He's locked us in. But Jesus unlocks. So do we want to jump to three yet, Mike, or do we want to save that for another podcast? Let's talk about his keys and opening doors. Yeah, we'll do some more of that with three. I so, think. But I love good. that contrast is as you play with the image, why does Jesus have the key to death and hell? Well, he unlocks them. And what does Satan do with his keys? He locks us. And so you're just always looking for that, that parallel image. I guess another image would be the sword the coming sword. out of his mouth. What would you do with that? Okay, so how is Jesus' words a sword? If, 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 if a sword is coming out of the Savior's mouth, well, words come out of our mouth. So the words of the Savior are a sword. Now, what I know about a sword is it has two edges. And the Savior's word can cut two ways. In the book of um, Acts, when Paul speaks, it's interesting. Some people say they were pricked in their heart. They were stirred up. They were changed. They were motivated. In other words, sometimes the words of Christ do pierce us like a sword, but they move us to action. 
other people were cut to the sword, by the sword. Nephi says, the guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them. So the Savior's words can either pierce you and promote you to repent and change, and what do I need to do, or they can cut you. And that's how kind of the Savior's words are like a sword. Well, what's interesting is in chapter 16, what comes out of the dragon's mouth? A frog, a plague. Frogs come out of the dragon's mouth. Clearly a reference to Egypt where frogs are tied to a plague. Well, if, if words are what's coming out of the mouth, then what he's saying is Jesus' words can cut you for both good and evil. They can cut you you know like nephi says they can you can take it hard or you can it it can prompt you to better action so the savior's words will push us to be better the satan's words are like a plague of lies that are going to flood the earth and try and drown you so just play with those images how are the words that come out of the savior's mouth like a sword What is he doing with his keys? How is he holding his stars? And you start to begin to see that there are two main characters of this book. The Savior is the one main character, and Satan is the other, the dragon, the beasts. And what they're doing is trying to captivate and enslave us. And what the Savior is trying to do is to free us and let us go. This is a really good introduction to the book of Revelation. Uh, We're going to get into the letters to seven churches, and the advice that that uh, John has for them, but it's really the Savior. The Savior is going to say, "Hey, make sure that you spread this message." But I really like this as an introduction to the text, as far as this is how it's to be read. And Jews that lived in the first century A.D. they got this stuff. They they've heard of Daniel. They've you know those that could read would have read Daniel. And apocalyptic literature, although it doesn't make it into the Bible, it's highly, the Bible's highly edited, apocalyptic literature was a happening thing. These guys did this stuff. And so it wasn't so strange to them like it is to us in our Western mind where X has to be two and Y has to be three and we're doing equations and there's only one right answer. And so, Bryce, I like that, how you said, hey, it could be lots of things. So... This is a great introduction. I really like it. It's a great way to practice. I just think the Lord is cutting our teeth on symbolism. And you notice that he gives us the answer to a couple of these so we can practice. And that's the idea with symbolic writing is learn to see it and practice it. And it's not so much don't worry about what's the right answer. The question is what do you see? So let me just do one more. When, When John sees the Savior and he describes him, verse 14, his head, his hairs were white like wool, white as snow, his eyes were a flame of fire. Now, I know that the, the, the natural image, we, we often see the devil with red eyes, right? And so with Jesus, has a, he's mad, he's angry, his eyes are red. And I, I, that's certainly one option. But I've thought a lot about that. How are the Savior's eyes like a flame of fire? Well, fire certainly burns, but fire in the spirit of the book of Revelation purifies meaning Jesus sees me through purified eyes. He doesn't have any of the preconceived notions that human beings often do when they look at us. Jesus sees me purely, perfectly. He sees me through purified, cleansed, beautified eyes. And I can trust that he's going to see me that way. 
that he's going to trust that he, I, I, I can trust that he's that kind of Messiah. It's like the woman when touched him with the hem of his garment and he said, who touched me? She must have panicked in that moment. Oh, no. And then he turns around and says, daughter. He knew exactly what happened. He wasn't angry. He wasn't upset. He sees us with purified eyes. So with every one of these images, take some time and just say, what does that mean? How do I see that? How does Jesus have eyes of fire? Why, is he, why are his words like a sword? What does it mean that he's holding his servants in his hand? If you're a, a mother of a missionary, what does it mean that Jesus holds his servants in his right hand? That's Tell beautiful me that imagery. doesn't comfort you and give yeah. you strength. And as we go into these latter days, what does it mean that Jesus is in the middle of his candlesticks? I know he's going to be with us no matter what happens. Jesus is going to be in the middle of his church. So play with these images and let them teach you and comfort you. And then we're going to move into some more significant images as we get into the book of Revelation. Bryce, I really like this. I really like how you take in in synagogue. They talk about pardes, which is it's a acronym for Peshat, Duresh, Remez, and then Sod. And Peshat's the literal reading, but the second two levels, you're nailing that. That is the metaphorical reading and the application reading. How can I apply this in my life? And the fourth level of the Sod is the temple. And so it just hit me while you're reading this. I was like, where have I read this before? And it's it's temple liturgy. It's Psalm 29. So notice what you just read. His eyes are like fire, and his voice is like the sound of many waters. This is almost a direct quote of Psalm 29. Now, it's so foreign to us, but we talked about this, I think, when we did Hebrews, and we'll do this again, especially when we get in Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, the ancients thought the heavens... The sky was blue because there was water up there, and there was a bowl, clear, a dome over the earth, and they called it the rakia, which in Hebrew just means to beat out like a shield. And so where's God? He's above that. He's above the rakia. He's above the waters. And so in this text you just read, his, the, voice, the sound of his voice is like many waters. Look at Psalm 29. And think about that. How calming are I – mean, I love to watch water flow because yeah. it's just so cal- – it's powerful – and yet call me. Yeah, yeah. Psalm 29, verse 1. Given to the Lord, O ye mighty, given to the Lord glory and strength. Given to the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. This is not, don't have the image of, you know, Yahweh on water skis. This is the God of heaven is above the firmament. He's above the waters and his throne's up there. And this is important. It's going to be replete throughout Revelation. John's going to see a temple on earth, but he's really looking at the temple in heaven. And this eyes of fire, look at his feet in verse 15. I'm in Revelation 1.15. His feet were likened to fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. My contention is John is in the Holy of Holies in heaven. And he's looking at God on the throne. Back to Psalm 29. Notice verse 7. The voice divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. Shake it, the voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. Verse 9. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to cap. Even God's voice makes these animals quake. And then notice. And discovereth the forest, and in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory the Lord sitteth upon the flood. The Lord sitteth king 
forever. This is temple. This is John in the temple, and he sees God, and that's with the brass and the fire. Everything in the Holy of Holies was gold. It was resplendent. Everything was with brilliance. And so I think John is referring back to these, because Psalm 29 was used in the first temple. And so he's tying all these knots. John wants us there. He's like, we're getting you there. We're going to take you home. He's establishing the main character in this book. Yeah. That God is with us, and he is mighty, and he is powerful, and he's going to be with us the whole time. And he's going to guide us and direct us. i got to throw one more in. I love that his feet were brass. Because when I hear the word brass, I think of brass plates. Leahona was brass. The scriptures are compared to a Leahona. What guides my feet? What determines the path I walk? The truths that are found in the scriptures. I walk the path that leads me. And I just, I love all these images. So your homework, everybody, as we dive into the book of Revelation is to practice symbolism. Pick a symbol. How is Jesus like a tree? Well, trees give off oxygen and take in carbon dioxide. So trees take in what is poisonous to us and give off what is life-giving. Jesus is like a tree. Play with that image. How is Jesus like a river? How is, how is, because we're going to ask the question, how is Satan like a seven-headed dragon? How is Jesus like a lamb? Why does he have 12 horns on his head? And the more you see these images, you can see the message that he's trying to teach. God is with us. He will protect us and keep us safe if we follow him and keep his commandments. And that seems to be the whole message of the book of Revelation. Is And we're setting this up by practicing. Do you see who God is? Do you see who we are? Do you see who your bishop is? Now follow and you'll be fine. You'll be safe. That's beautiful. And it's all happening in the first century. And so I think that's a beautiful recap. So with that, your homework, do it. Read Revelation 2 and 3. We'll be doing a podcast on that shortly. And if, if anything we're saying is helpful to you, if you find this useful, will you do us a favor? Will you share this on your social media? Will you find a way to share it on the podcast or to subscribe or even word of mouth? Because my testimony is this, goodness will prevail but not if we don't do anything. We need to do something. So that's our invitation to you is if you find this stuff useful, make a way in your day to share it. And uh, Bryce and I both, we love Jesus. We love the scriptures. We love God's kids. And we're all in this together. So thanks for your help, and we'll do our part. And with that, we'll see you next time.